Did you have a good Christmas? Yeah, good, good. Not overly enthusiastic, but still good. I hear you. I hear you. Hope you had a great one. Hey, uh, uh, I appreciate those who've been praying for me. I completely lost my voice on Friday. And um, it happens once in a while. I'm not sick. Uh, occasionally, a couple times a year, I'll just wake up, my voice is gone. And it just happened to be on Christmas Eve. And I woke up going, oh, no, not today. But we got through it. And um, it lingered this time all on Christmas Day. And uh, Taylor and Cody don't know how close they were to getting a phone call from me last night about 7 o'clock saying, you're up, buddy. I'm out. And uh, welcome to ministry. But uh, anyway, I got a good night's sleep. I woke up feeling much stronger today, my voice. And so, um, um, I, it, so appreciate you guys praying for me. Did you get to come to one of our five Christmas Eve services? Did you guys get to? That was pretty awesome. That was pretty awesome. Um, some of you have asked me, how many people actually came? Have you wondered that? We actually had counted as people were here. Um, believe it or not, it's pretty awesome. Uh, over the five services, uh, I held up for five, five services. I know how to count. Of the five services, there was 1,041 people that rolled in here for that. So pretty cool. Pretty cool, pretty cool. But it was just an awesome time together, just uh, celebrating uh, the birth of Jesus. And that's something we've been doing all month long here. We're finishing today our series, Christmas at, at New Life, and, and we've been looking at the birth narrative of Jesus. And really, we're not alone in doing that. Christians from all around the globe right now, the last day or so, have been celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, has every single person that celebrated Christmas, did they acknowledge that Jesus was born? No, let's be honest, not everybody. I, in fact, I'd say most people in the world that celebrate Christmas do not recognize that, that Jesus is Lord. But I'll tell you, whether they recognize it or not, there's something very special about this season. Um, and I'll tell you, there's some weird traditions out there celebrating Christmas. I've, I've shared this with you before a couple years ago. Um, um, I'll share it with you again, because some of you don't know this. But I think like one of the weirdest Christmas traditions on the planet is found in the country of Japan. I kid you not. Now, there's only 1% Christianity race. There's not a lot of people in Japan that are recognizing the, the, the birth of Jesus Christ, but you know what they recognize on Christmas in Japan? Kentucky Fried Chicken. I kid you not. I'm dead serious. I am dead serious. It is, a, it is like a, a tradition as much as it does for us to for uh, you know, Christmas cookies and turkey, it, it, it is KFC. And um, um, I, I'm blown away by this. Um, it all started back in like 1974. Um, KFC came to Japan and there was a marketing campaign um, throughout uh, Japan for, to eat Kentucky Fried Chicken on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and it just took the country by storm. And so it, it was this slogan, and I'm gonna butcher the slogan because I don't have the voice to say it, but the slogan is, Kurasamasu Niwa Kentucky. And, um, you know, and, and, and I'm telling you, that right there, that stands for Christmas at Kentucky. And, um, and so you, you have to, to put your order in about six weeks ahead of time. Um, in order to get it, and you will wait in line for about two and a half hours on Christmas Eve to pick up your Kentucky Fried Chicken, and then you go home, and you microwave it all, and then you eat it, and this is the big deal in Japan. And some of you are looking at me like, I don't know if I believe you, Pastor. Let me show you a commercial for Christmas in Japan. Kentucky Christmas! Christmas! 
See, told you. <laughs> well, hey, I'll tell you what, whether you had turkey or ham or KFC on, uh, on Christmas, uh, I hope you had a great, 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 great Christmas celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. And like I said, that's what we've been trying to focus on this entire uh, month, just the focus of Jesus and not miss some of these details. And I've shared with you a number of times now that when we come to this, what is really the most familiar story in all the world, celebrated around the globe, it's easy for us as Christians to, to approach something so familiar and just to skip it and say, I already know all these details. But I hope that through this month, that, that new insight or, or truth that you have forgotten about, about God and his character and about his son Jesus, uh, who was born in Bethlehem have kind of come back and have impacted us. And you've seen the Lord work in, in, in just some amazing, amazing ways as we've just taken a fresh look at the birth narrative of Jesus. We started with Joseph and Mary when, when Mary found out in Nazareth that she's gonna be a mom. And we learned through that that what? Nothing is impossible with God. And I'll tell you, I hope that for some of us in this church, we've seen that play out in our families and our lives this Christmas. Nothing is impossible with God. We saw how Mary went to visit her, her relative Elizabeth who was having her own miraculous pregnancy. She was carrying John the Baptist in her womb, if you remember. And when Mary showed up, and uh, the Bible says John the Baptist leaped for joy inside of his mother's womb. And she's like, you are blessed, Mary. You're blessed, I'm blessed. And we took a look at this idea of blessing. What does it mean to be blessed? Really, it really doesn't have a lot to do with what we call blessings today. It really has to do with being truly blessed is when you're part of God's plan be a part of his family. And you know the grave is not the end. We're gonna spend eternity in heaven. Man, I'll tell you, if you can live that reality, that truly is blessed. We learned how the shepherds came to see, they were the first invited to see the infant Jesus on the day of his birth. And, and, uh, and, and, and it's just an example to us, a visual, if you will, that Jesus himself was going to be the good shepherd. Now today, we are concluding this series by examining what happens um, following Jesus' birth. The shepherds weren't the only visitors, you know, to come see Jesus. He also received some very unlikely visitors from a far off place. The, the traditional Christmas song refers to these visitors as kings. You might remember, we three kings of Orient. Are, we really don't know if there was three or if there was 20. We just don't know. We don't know a whole lot about them, to be quite honest with you. What we do know is that Matthew decides to include this detail in in his gospel, and he calls them magi. Do you got your Bibles open? Let's look at Matthew chapter two. And I'd like for us to, on this last sermon in the series, just take a look. Who are these magis? Why, who are the magi? Why they come? Why does Matthew tell us about them? And, and what does it teach us about God? What does it teach us about us? So Matthew chapter two, we're gonna start in verse one, and it just says this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Who in the world were these guys? Who, who are the Magi? 
like I said, the Bible gives us a few details about them, but we just don't know a whole, a lot, a whole lot about them. And like I said, the song says there's three, but in reality, we don't know. And, and so what I will say again, until I have no more air in my lungs, is that we are not gonna look at tradition. We're not gonna look at hand-me-down stories to find out details about Jesus. We're gonna go straight to the source. What does the Bible say about it? So the Bible doesn't say anything about kings or wise men, really. Matthew just calls them magi. There's been a lot of tradition and stories come down, passed down through the years, actually names the magi, but we don't know anything about it. Um, we know they came from the east. Most people agree that the east, meaning they came from you know, Persia, the ancient Babylon area, which we would know today as modern day Iraq. And we get a little bit of a glimpse at their profession just based off their name. The Greek term for magi in Persian societies, you know, it really means more like a, 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 a magician, if you will, but not like so much like David Copperfield magician. These are guys that study the stars. They were into astrology, but we would probably understand more like astronomy today. Um, they, um, they just, they were sky watchers. They, they watched for unusual things. They, back in that time, they were known for their ability to interpret dreams and signs. And so uh, magi in those cultures were often brought in by kings and leaders to interpret the signs of the time or to help them make decisions about where the government should go. It would be kind of like this. If these guys were still around today, then uh, the president of the United States may have a group of magi that would come in and, and help him make decisions off of things they see in society. So um, that's kind of who these guys were. And when they come, they speak of a star. They saw something in the sky or a rising star, some kind of phenomenon in the sky that was unusual. They hadn't seen it before. And it was, it was enough, whatever it was, caused them to pack up their stuff and travel to Jerusalem. And I'll tell you, many people over the years have speculated and hypothesized about what it was exactly that these magi saw in the sky. Did they see a star? Was it another planet? Was it a supernova? Was it a special alignment of planets that caused it to be extra bright? Was it a comet that they saw uh, rising in, on the horizon? We just don't know. There's been scientists that have tried to you know, reverse what the sky would look like all the way back to when they think the Magi came and, to, uh, and try to say, what from Babylon, what would they have seen? What would the sky have looked like? We, we don't know. Could it have been, or was it a supernatural phenomenon that they saw that was only for them? You know, much like we saw in the Old Testament where a pillar of cloud led the Israelites through the wilderness. Was it more like supernatural like that? But we just don't know. And, and I, I feel comfortable saying, I don't think we're ever gonna really know what it was exactly that they saw. But whatever it was, it did cause them to pack up their stuff and head to Jerusalem. And, and off they went. Now, we'll learn a little bit later, a little bit more about this star and what they saw in our text, but, uh, but there they go. Now, I'll say this. No matter who these guys were specifically, and no matter what it was exactly that they saw in the sky that day, I think it's safe to say, and how I would describe them, is that they are a group of truth seekers. That's who they are. At the end of the day, God gave them a sign 
a sign to this group of true seekers, in a way, a sign that they would receive and that they could um, um, connect with, and they went out to seek out what this was all about. Now, for me, personally, there's a pretty powerful lesson in here by just knowing a few of these details. Last week, we learned about a group of Jewish shepherds who were the first to come and see Jesus. And like I said, that is a very powerful reminder of the fact that Jesus was going to be the good shepherd. It's also a reminder that it was the humble and it was the lowly who were the first attracted to Jesus. And we looked at all that last week. But now we talk about the Magi being called to come meet Jesus. That points to something else completely. It points to the fact that it's not just gonna be the Jews who are going to receive this Savior, but the Magi coming seems to indicate um, that, it, that the salvation of the world was gonna be for everybody. That there's something about Jesus and that he came, he's gonna reach more people, and that, it, that, that what his message is gonna be and who it will impact will go farther than just the Jews. We look at Christianity today and we see that truth clearly on display. Christianity has spread around the world and it encompasses multiple countries, many different languages, many different nationalities, skin color, you name it. This is spreading around the world. And to me, the Magi come who were not Jews, but they were interested in the king of the Jews, says something significant about who Jesus would become and who he is going to reach and what and who Christianity is for. So these truth seekers, they come with a very specific question. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? How in the world did they know to look for somebody so specifically? It's a very specific question. Where is the king of the Jews? Now this is a really interesting question. Why would they even connect that what they saw in the sky to the king of the Jews. Here's some speculation here, and we don't know for sure, but it's interesting to say the least. If you know your Old Testament history, this will, this will connect with you. It'll make some sense. We know these magi probably came from Babylon, that area. And why would a group of guys from Babylon want to meet the king of the Jews? What do we know from Old Testament history that happened in Babylon? We know that the Israelites rebelled so much against God that God allowed them to be taken into captivity and transported where? To Babylon. Years later, after a change in government, all of the Jews were allowed to go home. But you know, majority of them stayed in Babylon. Hey, it's been a long enough time. We're established here. We're just gonna live here. Now, some did go back. You might remember they rebuilt the walls, Ezra, Nehemiah, that whole season. They did go back. So you had Jewish populations in Babylon, and you have Jewish population in the Holy Land. Now, it was during this time of captivity, we meet a guy named Daniel. Remember Daniel in the lion's den? And he rose to great um, authority in the country, advisor to the king, um, multiple kings from different countries. Here you have Daniel, grew to be an old man, had a very influential role. Many have argued that maybe Daniel was seen, back in the day, more like a magi, to the people that live there. 
carried a lot of influence, we know that. Um, Maybe after all of these years later, these hundreds of years later, Daniel's influence is still being spread. And maybe they see this star and they go, what was the stories handed down to us? What is the Jewish community saying? That there's something about the king of the Jews. They knew something about the king of the Jews. And could it be that one man's influence of Daniel has filtered down to these modern day magi and they said, let's go check it out. I don't know. That's just a speculation. But it's interesting. How in the world and why did they look for someone so specifically? But either way, they're a group of truth seekers and they're coming to find out what all this means. Look at verse three. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. So this was not good news to Herod. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So they come to Herod, they come to the king. And honestly, that's not uncommon. That makes a lot of sense. Most likely these truth seekers, the Magi, they traveled there with letters explaining from their leaders what's going on. It was customary. It was like, hey, we're not here to hurt you. We're not here. We're here looking for the king of the Jews. It's not weird that they would go to Herod on this trip. And so Herod hears this and he calls in the chief priest and the teacher of the law. He calls in his people that would know anything there is to know about this supposed king of the Jews. And let me just tell you, it wasn't a big mystery. It's not like the chief priest or the teacher of the law had to look really hard. They're like, well, as a matter of fact, back in Micah, you know, he talks about the Savior coming from Bethlehem. And that's exactly what's being paraphrased here in Matthew's gospel. It's a paraphrase of Matthew, or excuse me, Micah chapter 5 2, which is one of the most famous prophecies in the Bible. It names the birthplace of the Savior. That's where he's going to come from. So it wasn't hard to figure out. Herod didn't have a clue, but the people he brought in certainly understood. Oh, we're talking King of the Jews. We're talking Messiah. We're talking Bethlehem. And you know, that really wasn't a shock or two for anybody else. It wasn't like some great mystery just got revealed um, in this time frame. It's like, oh, the light bulb. No, 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 no. There's a time that John, um, during Jesus' ministry, Jesus is teaching, and a conversation, a debate breaks out among the people who are listening to Jesus talk. And you don't have to turn there, but it's Matthew chapter, or excuse me, John chapter seven, verse 40. And this is what happens. Jesus talks to them and and on hearing these, his words, some of the people said, surely this man is a prophet. People were always trying to figure out who Jesus was. Surely he's a prophet. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? See, there is some understanding among the people, that when we're talking Savior, we're talking Messiah, we're talking prophecies, we're talking some details. This was not some revelation, it's not a mystery. People tend to understand some of the details about the coming of the Messiah. Herod, however, didn't have a clue. But he's starting to put the pieces together. Herod was a scoundrel of a man, but he was no dummy. And he starts to learn some things. So this is what he says, this is what happens next. Look at verse seven. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. In fact, Herod's like, I need details. 
So the reality is we don't know exactly when this star arrived and when the Magi saw it. Was it a year before Jesus was born? Was it during Jesus' birth? Was it, we're not really sure. They're trying to put the timeline together and many have tried to figure out the timeline. What we know is at some point around the birth of Jesus, these guys started to travel. And it wasn't like an overnight weekend trip. This would take them some time. Most estimates say that the Magi arrived somewhere around between Jesus' six month of life and two years of life. We're not really sure when the Magi showed up. It wasn't like the shepherds. They weren't there in the stable. They weren't there with the shepherds. It wasn't like that at all. They came later, and you're gonna see that in just a moment. But Herod's trying to put the timeline together. So he calls them in secretly, and he wants to know. And then he said, verse eight, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. You gotta read verse eight like this. Herod's like, why don't you go and find them and report back to me? You know, that, that's really the sense, that's really the sense of this verse. Herod did not have good intentions at all. Um, we're not gonna talk a whole lot about Herod today but he is truly one of the great scoundrels of the Bible. He's really one of the great scoundrels in human history. Uh, I would put Herod, this Herod, right up there with all of the worst characters that the Bible tells us about. He has no plans to worship this kid born king of the Jews. He has plans to kill this one who is the king of the Jews. This is Herod who has a long history documented in history of killing anyone that threatened his power, even his own family. He has killed many of his family, including wives who he thought were a threat to his power. He has no intention of letting Jesus live this thing out. Look at verse nine. After they heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where Jesus was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. So here they are at the end of a very long journey. Many have speculated this was a year long journey. We, we don't really know, but, but a long journey. And they're about to see what all this is about. You know that had to be a joyful moment. They, were, they knew they were close because the star that they had seen now appeared again and it rested right over the house. So this is what the scripture seems to indicate. Way back in Babylon, where they were living, they saw something in the sky that made them go, huh, there's something we need to go see. It has something to do with the king of the Jews. Where did they learn that? Maybe it was passed down from Daniel and his influence. We don't know, but they travel. It doesn't really seem to indicate that that star led them all the way to Jerusalem. They just knew they had to go there. It wasn't until after they found out from Herod's people that is supposed to be in Bethlehem and they turned their caravan towards Bethlehem that this star, this same thing they saw appeared again and guided them, which makes me think that it was not uh, some star or an alignment of planets or comet. This is something supernatural that God allowed them to see to guide them. And it takes them right to the house that Jesus was in. So he's not in a stable anymore. Some time has passed. They're in a home now. And they were overjoyed. The word overjoyed jumps out at me at the text. You may not realize this, but the word overjoyed just isn't used very many times in the Bible. It's a special expression. It, 
It shouldn't be something that just passes us over. In fact, the word overjoyed, you're only going to find that in our Bibles five times. Overjoyed. You'd think it'd be a lot more, wouldn't you? Five times. The first time somebody is overjoyed, we read about it in the book of Daniel. And we just talked about Daniel. Remember, Daniel was thrown in the lion's den because he would not stop praying to God three times a day. And the king had issued this order that he couldn't reverse. And so he was stuck by this. And they threw him in the lion's den. The king was worried all night long because he cared a lot for Daniel. And then the next morning, he finds out that the lions did not hurt Daniel. And he's coming out. And it says the king was overjoyed. That's the first time we read about that in the Bible, this word overjoyed. The second time is our text right here, the Magi. They were overjoyed when they came to the house that the Messiah was in. The third time we read overjoyed in the scripture, it was used after the resurrection of Jesus when he appeared to his disciples. It's John chapter 20. It just says on, the, on the, the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were all together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. He said, peace be with you. And then he showed him his hands and his side where the nails were. And it says the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. The fourth time is kind of what is considered more of a comical situation. Peter is miraculously released from prison in Acts chapter 12, and he arrives at the home of some fellow believers, and he's like, it's me, Peter, let me in. Because he's not supposed to be out of jail. And the little girl that came to the gate, and she heard Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran away and forgot he was still standing there. And she, came, she was overjoyed, Peter is at the door. The fifth time overjoy is used in scripture is uh, it's used as very important words to us as believers from the apostle Peter, 1 Peter chapter four. Peter's talking about suffering and joy together. And he says this, friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange is happening to you. But rejoice when you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So in a sense, this word overjoyed is, is somebody who experiences all loss of senses as they are overwhelmed with happiness. That's what overjoyed, it's like, I forget who I am, like, like the king. I think in that moment, he forgot all about being the king. He was so overjoyed that his friend was alive. It's just like, oh, oh, I'm just gonna celebrate. I'm gonna dance, I'm gonna shout, I'm gonna, he, I, I think he just forgot all about being a king for a minute. He was so happy. I think about the disciples I think in the moment that Jesus appeared to them after they watched him die and he appeared to them alive, they had just lost all senses. They didn't care who was around. They were just overjoyed at seeing Jesus and touching his hands and his side. Overjoyed. I think about how we're gonna be when we finally meet Jesus face to face. And if we're still alive when Jesus returns and we see him coming in the clouds and we've been caught up in the clouds we too in that moment will lose all sense of who we are, where we are. We will be so overjoyed at the prospect of this is when eternity begins. Overjoyed. 
So I imagine that the, that the wise men, when they came to the house and they saw the star, then it stopped at the house and they knew that the end of their journey was there. You know the excitement had to have been just billowing out of them. They were so overjoyed. I mean, I, mean, I would imagine that a couple of their camels wandered off because they forgot to tie them up because they were so overjoyed. They just lost the sense. Where, and, and there they are. We're here to meet Jesus. Verse 11, it says, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. See, to me, this is the moment while they received the word wise attached to their name. I think this moment right here proves just how wise they were. This was no palace this is a poor man's house. There's no attendants there. There's no bodyguards. There's no trumpets to announce their arrival or that the king of the Jews lives here. No, they came to a poor man's house and they found a peasant girl and they gave them gifts fitting for a king. That's really what Christmas is all about, isn't it? They came to worship Jesus. And I hope that's why you come too, to worship Jesus. We all know that Christmas is a time for family and friends. It is a time for giving and receiving a gift. It is a time for trimming trees and decorating trees and, and, and baking cookies and all that stuff. We sing Christmas songs and carols and we watch Christmas movies. But in the midst of all that, let us never forget that Christmas is about the birth of our Savior. It is a celebration of Jesus. It's a time to praise him, to glorify him, to focus on him, to worship him for all that he is and all that he's done. Christmas is about worship and the Magi truly were wise men. You know, depending on your church background and here at New Life, we've got, I think, just about every church background you can imagine that make up our church family, it's pretty wonderful. But depending on your church background, worship probably means different things to you based on what you've experienced. You may think that a church service or worship, if you will, is about going to church, singing some songs, saying some prayers, and listening to a sermon. It's certainly involved in that. Maybe some of you, um, your idea of worship is more ceremonial in nature. Maybe we light some candles and chant some things and, 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 and whatever. Worship can include all of those elements. But worship is far more than simple expressions that we would give to God perhaps for one hour on Sunday. Worship doesn't start or stop with a prayer or a song, and I hope we all amen that. I can tell you that true worship of our Savior cannot be contained by four walls of any building. It's a mixture of joy and reverence and wonder, 
that gets evoked inside of a believer when there is awareness of God's greatness and goodness and grace. I'll tell you what involves worship, and I'm talking daily worship, is that feeling sometimes, and I use that word carefully, but that sense of awestruck that comes over us when we, when we recognize and realize that an uncontested, incomparable God of infinite might and glory and power and wonder stepped out from heaven, out from his throne, and into the arms of a teenage girl. And in the presence of a carpenter, and on the floor of the stable, he stepped out of heaven to do that so that he could draw near to us. Friends, Christmas is about worship. And on that first Christmas, the Magi came to worship Jesus. And I would pray and hope that every single one of us in this room would follow in their footsteps. Because this is about worship of our Savior. And our purpose, one of our many purposes as Christians, is to worship our Heavenly Father in faith, truth, and worship. Let me pray for you. Dear Lord, I just again thank you for your word. Lord, as we come here today, it is like the wise men who coming to pay homage to the king. And Lord, I pray that every time we gather in this place, that that would be our posture. We are here to worship. It's not about us. It's not about what we have. No, it is about the true blessing of being a part of your plan that you stepped out of heaven so that you could draw near to us. And ultimately, you died on the cross so that we might be saved. Lord, I, I pray that we never lose sight that we are worshipers of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Whether we're here or in a far off place, whether with the multitudes or we're all alone, we are made to worship the King. In Jesus' name, we pray, amen.